Hello, how's everyone doing? I'm here uh, again with a uh, special guest, Stephen Kinsella. Stephen Kinsella is a patent attorney and uh, against IP or pro real property. Uh, how are you doing today? Very good. How are you doing, Daniel? I'm doing well. We have a lot of uh, interesting topics. So I guess we'll start with um, let's start with estoppel. What 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 is that for people who don't know? Estoppel is a uh, a legal concept, and um, I used it. I used a variant of that reasoning to come up with my own um, argument in favor of individual rights in the libertarian sense. Um, in the legal sense, estoppel is the idea that if you make some kind of representation, say in a court proceeding or in the course of a transaction with someone else, like you you say something is a fact that's true to make to make a point or to win a point or to get someone to rely upon it, then later on you can't uh, you can't undermine that. You can't say something that's contradictory to that to make another argument in the court proceeding. You're said to be stopped or precluded from from saying that. So, for example, um, a good example is in the law. Um, uh, if someone shows up to paint your house, but they're supposed to paint your neighbor's house, and they're accidentally painting your house, and normally they're committing a trespass, right? And uh, and if if they painted your whole house and gave you a nice new paint job, you wouldn't have to pay them because you didn't have a contract with that person. But let's suppose you showed up uh, at the beginning of the job. You come home for lunch, and you see these guys setting up to paint your house, and you realize they've made a mistake, and they were supposed to paint your neighbor's house, but they're painting your house. And they just kind of wave at you, and you wave back at them, and you don't say a word, right? You go, oh, I'm going to get a free paint job. And then – so basically what the law would say there is you are – you're sort of implying that there's a contract, and these guys are relying upon it because you're not correcting their mistake. And then later on, if they sue you for breach of contract, technically they're correct that you didn't have a contract, but you were or stopped from saying you don't have a contract because to say that is inconsistent with your previous behavior. And when I learned this in law school in contracts class in 1988, this was right around the time I had just read Hans Hermann Hoppe's um, symposium in Liberty Magazine presenting his defense of rights, which is called argumentation ethics. And so I was fascinated by it. Um, I was uh, uh, taken with it right away, and it occurred to me when I learned about estoppel that a similar type of reasoning to estoppel could be used to argue for libertarian rights. Basically because we libertarians, unlike everyone else, um, believe in the non-aggression principle, which, is, which has a certain symmetry to it. The symmetry is in that we're not, a, we're not pacifists. We're not opposed to force. But we think you're only permitted to use force in response to force. If someone just insults you, well, you can insult them back, but you can't use force back because that would not be symmetrical. Um, so you can see how something like the estoppel reasoning could be used, and, and my argument was that the reason we have rights or the reason that we can only justify libertarian rights and the reason we can justify the right to retaliate or to use force against someone in response to initiated force or to aggression. The reason we have that right is because if you imagine a, a, a type of setting where people are discussing this and arguing about it, for the criminal 
right, who you are seeking the right to punish or to use defensive force against, for him to argue that you don't have the right to use force against him, that is for him to deny your right to responsibly uh, retaliate, he would have to commit a, an act a, an inconsistent statement. He would have to say, you don't have the right to use force against me. While right after the fact that he himself committed force against you, in which act he did condone the use of force. So he basically, when he commits force against an innocent victim, he is basically endorsing the rule: the use of force against someone's consent is permissible. So he shouldn't be allowed to change his tune later when the same rule is going to be applied or a similar rule is going to be applied back to him. I would say he would be a stopped. And by saying that, I simply mean. His argument is inconsistent. He's not making a, a consistent argument, so he's basically uttering a contradiction. We know that contradictions can't be true. So this is just a way of demonstrating to the person interested in this topic that anyone opposing libertarian rights basically has to engage in a contradiction, which shows you that the only type of normative theory, the only type of rights that could ever be maintained coherently without contradiction is the libertarian view of rights, which is similar to Hoppe's argumentation ethics, uh, defensive rights. Right. Yep. Very good. I, I would agree. Uh, so I, I, so I, wrote, I wrote a long article about this in the Journal of Libertarian Studies in, um, I think, 1994, 1985, and I've written some, some other – I wrote one in 1991 or two in Reason Papers um, elaborating on this, and, and um, that was sort of my early foray into libertarian – Sort of legal theory and, and writing, but it's kind of my most uh, it's the topic that really still interests me the most because rights theory is the basis of, of, of really everything that we libertarians believe in. Right. Yeah. I would agree. I mean, I I, I was having a a debate with someone, and he um, he was saying to me, "Well, what is considered uh, property is is arbitrary. You know why?" And I, I was disagreeing, but I guess his argument was basically, you know, how come you can't just plant a flag on the moon and say that's your property, uh, but yet you get to mix your labor with your land, and that is considered property? But you know, I mean, how would you? Yeah, I think the basic estoppel framework first, and even Hoppe's argumentation ethics first talks about the the concept of aggression and necessarily refers to property rights in people's bodies. That's sort of the fundamental concept. Aggression by itself means, sort of in its basic meaning, uh, to you know hit someone's body to commit aggression against them. Um, so to say that you're a self-owner or that you own your body is almost the same thing as saying that aggression is not permissible. They're almost different ways of saying the same thing. But when we talk about external resources um, that we that people start employing as means in life that we use to accomplish things in the world, like land or food or crops or animals or, or whatever, <clears throat> at this point in time, saying aggression – saying we're against aggression is not sufficient because when you talk about these types of supposedly owned resources, um, you have to first identify who the owner is to call it aggression. So when you say aggression, it's really shorthand for a certain theory of ownership. So really what aggression means in the context of, of these externally owned resources, um, what we mean by aggression is an unconsented to use of or invasion of the borders of or change in the physical integrity of 
this resource without the permission or consent of the owner. That's what aggression is. So to determine whether a given action is aggressive, you have to first define who owns it. So if I take an apple from your hand without your consent, it's aggression if you own the apple, but if I own the apple and I'm retrieving my stolen property, it's not aggression. So aggression is more of a dependent concept in this sense. Now, you can come up with an argument to justify this theory of property rights uh, using Hoppe's argumentation ethics or using my estoppel argument by extending the self-ownership idea um, from body ownership to other things. You can basically say that um, if once we… Once we accept the idea that uh, we interact in a peaceful way and we, we respect each other's rights in our bodies, um, as Hoppe says, for example, you have to recognize that we're not ghosts. We're not just free-floating entities. We're practical people. We live in a real world with scarce resources, and this activity of engaging in an argument itself is a practical activity, which requires the use of resources. So you cannot even respect someone's property rights in their body and assert that you have property rights in your body as the only thing that there could be rights in. You have to admit that there are other rights in other things, that we have to be able to use these resources, and presumably they should be used peacefully just like, just like the non-aggression principle in people's bodies presupposes peace is preferable to violence when you can avoid it. Um, so when you, when you take sort of these basic presuppositions of argumentation… And you combine it with a little economic knowledge and literacy and awareness of the way the world works and the fact that we live in a world of scarce resources and that the only way to act is to employ means. And when you recognize that the only way to employ these resources in the world is someone had to first start using them because they were unowned at one point, and the only way to have a right to use a resource is if you can at some point take it from the unowned state of nature. So then the only question really is… If we assume that we want to have a peaceful way of setting rules for who controls these resources, who should control resources so that we can use them peacefully and productively, if we assume that, and that is a presupposition of the peaceful activity of argumentation in the first place, then the only question is what rule could be decided upon by participants in argumentation as fair and just? And since we have to assume… That the resource has to be taken by someone to ever be used, then the first user has a special connection to the resource, and he has a better claim than anyone that comes later. If you say the second user or the third user has a better claim than the first user, what you're really saying is that the first guy is the owner, but then someone else can just come along and use force to take it from him. But that's not a peaceful way of settling ownership. That's just saying we don't have rights at all. We just have a war of all against all naked force. So really there's really no logical… Alternative, except for the sort of Lockean libertarian idea of a very simple set of rules that every time there's a scarce resource in the world, if we want to have a rule that lets people use this resource peacefully and productively, we have to find some kind of natural objective link between the person claiming ownership of it and the resource. In the case of our bodies, this link is obvious. Every person is the presumptive owner of his own body because you, can, you directly control it. So you have a better claim to your body than someone else, which is one reason we're opposed to, let's say, slavery. Okay, um, And in the case of other things, it's the, either the first person who homesteaded the resource or someone he transferred the resource to by contract. So if, if John homesteads an unowned tract of land and then sells it to Ralph, well, 
Ralph has a better claim than John, not because he first homesteaded it, but because he got it by contract from John. And then Ralph has also a better claim against anyone else in the world because he could, he steps into sort of John's shoes, so to speak. He inherits John's priority. Um, it's like it's what insurance is called subrogation. Um, so it's a very simple set of rules. You can identify the owner of any scarce resource by asking a couple of simple questions. Number one, who first homesteaded this resource? Number two, was there any contractual assignment by him or by other owners down the road? And then you could have another exception, which would be did the previous owner commit some kind of tort or crime against someone else by which he forfeited his rights in the property? So for example, um, Ralph might owe the property to a third party not because he sold it to him but because he committed a tort and damaged this third person, and he owes him constant compensation, and his only asset may be this, this, this tract of land, so he owes it to the guy as restitution. Okay, or if I'm committing, I'm mugging you and I'm using a gun, then the victim is entitled to take take my gun from me and just and homestead it. So I've given up the gun by an act. But in in either case, whether it's by contract or whether it's by an act of crime or negligence or tort, it's still a voluntary action of the previous owner that ends up alienating title to the property to some some guy down the road, some third party, some assignee. Right. Very good. So I, I guess that brings us. To I guess somewhat similar issue of uh, what are contracts and also when are they valid? Like uh, some people may may uh, ask, well, if you make a contract when you're inebriated, would that be a valid contract? Or if someone you know, if you make a contract with someone who's uh, severely retarded, would that be uh, a valid contract? What what does the conscious level have to be? And uh, can any make wait contracts? I think that um, we have to first step back and ask what are contracts, and most people think of contracts as um, a promise that you enter into that's somehow so-called binding under the law, which means the law is going to enforce it. And so they'll even go so far as to say if you breach a contract, then you're committing a type of trespass or aggression against the person who is the promisee. Um, and in some cases, they would even say like if you – promise to repay a loan, like in a debt contract, um, then if you don't repay the loan, even if you have no money to repay it with, then you've committed a type of theft, and therefore debtor's prison would be justified. Now, if you view promises as binding promises, as contracts as binding promises in this way, you sort of have an alternate basis of rights, which is set up against the normal idea of aggression and rights and scarce resources. And it leads to these kinds of dilemmas and strange results like debtor's prison, uh, which even Rothbard uh, justified in theory, although it sort of is not compatible with his inalienability views. But Walter Block, one of his followers and a good friend of mine, uh, takes that to its consistent conclusion and thinks that you could sell your body into slavery, and, or, or if you don't fulfill a contract, um, it could be a type of aggression. But Rothbard himself… And actually, and I think one of his underappreciated contributions, um, he's got this contract theory that he he developed in, in Ethics of Liberty. Um, he he claims that he's developing, fleshing out the work of William Evers, but if you look a little bit further back, it looks to me like Rothbard came up with this idea first, and probably through conversations with Evers, led Evers to write his paper, and then Rothbard built upon that. So kind of Rothbard and Evers together. 
uh, Bill Evers is a um, a well-known um, libertarian sort of legal theorist. Um, anyway, Rothbard's contract theory says, listen, we, we shouldn't look at contracts as binding promises. And the reason is because a promise is really just words that you're saying, and if you just utter words, I mean really there's free speech. Now I'm kind of putting words in Rothbard's mouth. This is not how he phrased it. This is his basic argument I believe. What he's saying is if you make a promise, if someone else relies upon that… Well, that's up to them whether they want to rely upon it. You know, so this whole idea of detrimental reliance, which is what the, the legal theory of, of contracts is based on, and that's flawed, and I agree with him on that. Um, uh, what he says is contracts really should just be seen as the exercise of power of ownership. So it all, it all goes back to this fundamental question that we talked about earlier, which is the purpose of libertarian rights. They're all It's always… It was to recognize that all rights are property rights. All rights are rights of control, exclusive control over some scarce resource, whether it's your body or some other resource. And the libertarian view is very simple that we can identify who the owner is by the simple rules I mentioned earlier, who homesteaded it, who made a contract, who committed a tort. That's it. So then the question is what does the right of ownership give you? It's a right of control, and we recognize that one of these rights of control… So for example, let's suppose you own a, a car. Your ownership of that car means that you have the ability as the owner to grant someone permission to use the car, to enter the car, or or to, to deny them permission, to exclude them from it. That That's the essence of ownership. That's what it's about. It's about you're the one who can control the resource, and you can make the decision about when other people can use this resource. So you can invite people to your home for a dinner party. But you don't have to invite them. The invitation is an exercise of ownership. Now, these exercises of ownership are basically contract. That's what a contract is. It's the, it's the announcement of the intent of the owner. It's the public announcement or the communication of consent to someone telling them whether or not they're entitled to use this property. So if I put up a no trespassing sign, I'm saying don't use my property. You know, if I have an open house party and I open my front door and I welcome everyone, I'm signaling by my actions that people are entitled to use my property for a certain purpose. Now, this can be done temporary, partially, conditionally. It doesn't have to be complete, but it could be. That's what a sale is. You know, I sell you this chocolate cookie I just baked for a penny. So I'm giving you I own this cookie and I'm giving it to you. So that's another exercise of ownership, and that's what a contract is. Now, a more complicated contract can be future-oriented and conditional, so you put conditions on it. Like I say to you, listen, I want you to paint my house, and if you do that, then I will transfer to you this one-ounce gold coin in, in one week's time or whenever you're finished. So I'm making a conditional future-oriented title transfer. It's conditional because it's, it's going to be triggered by the occurrence of an uncertain future event, which is your action – painting my house or not. So you can set these conditional title transfers up, and that gets you roughly the same type of contractual scheme we have in today's law, but with a different basis of justifying it and understanding it. Right. So how um, about now, uh, go ahead. So how about let's say bets? You know, I'll I'll give you a thousand dollars if the Mets win the World Series and if the Yankees win you give me a thousand dollars. If someone doesn't fulfill their end of the uh, bet 
would that be, I guess, so that would not be able, that would not be a violation, or would that... So so you don't really think, so under this understanding of contracts, it's really impossible to breach a contract. And there's no such thing as fulfilling or not fulfilling a bet, because a contract is just a conditional transfer of title to property. So in a bet, um, um, what we're doing is, we're, let's say it's a mutual bet where if a certain thing happens, you pay me $10, and if another thing happens, I pay you $100. Okay, so we're each – there's two title transfers here. You're conditionally transferring $10 to me at a certain time in the future specified uh, based upon a certain condition that's specified in the contract, and I'm doing the same for 100 with you. So these are just title transfers. Now, when the specified event happens, then it's either going to be one of the two title transfers is triggered. Either yours is triggered to me or vice versa. At that point in time, $100 of my property… Is transferred and becomes yours. So that's there's nothing for me to do. It's just that now you own this one hundred dollars. It's in my possession. I was holding a hundred dollars. I owned it. Now I'm still holding it, but you have the ownership of it. Right. So, so now I'm holding. So you wouldn't the, be able to renege on a bet, right? I just want to. It's impossible to renege on a bet. And now the, in the in the in the in the in the law, this is called the efficient breach theory of contract. So there's actually some recognition of this idea. The the, the point is that. You can always set up some kind of payment of monetary damages that's a, basically a punishment for not doing something the other person wants, um, and but that's just a title transfer. Now, you asked a question about um, someone who's mentally handicapped, etc. So the, the first question is can someone who's severely mentally deficient or incapacitated or retarded or whatever, can they be a property owner in the first place? So if they can be a property owner, then… They, of course, can exercise the um, the rights of an owner, which would include transferring to someone else. So if you posit someone who is not composmentous enough to reliably make a rational, consensual, uncoerced decision to, you know, to transfer the property, then they probably shouldn't be considered to be a property owner in the first place. They kind of go hand in hand together. Right. No, you know it's interesting because because one one of the reasons I've asked are there are like certain people who say that um, if you have sex with a woman when she's drunk that's considered rape, and I would say to be consistent that let it's theft if you sell to someone when they're drunk, right? Because but I would you know I would probably well say in that, that case I would just say this the sale I would say the sale is just not affected, so you're actually I mean. That's different. See, an act of rape, I mean, an act of sex is actually it actually occurs. So then the question is, was it consented to or not? Okay. Now I've I've even I've had people tell me, and I think this is silly. Um, let's say two a, a, a young man and a young woman in college get totally totally wasted at a party, and they end up sleeping with each other. Uh, and each one is so drunk that you that that you can't say that either one uh, really. Knowingly consented to the act. Um, I've had people say that they raped each other. Now, to me, that makes no sense. If you don't have the capacity to voluntarily decide whether to have sex, then you also shouldn't be responsible for doing what you're doing. I mean, it just it, they kind of go together, I think. But um, um, so in the sale case, um, and this is something that comes up in my mind with like the legal the legal crime of bigamy, right? Which is legally marrying. More than one person. Mm -hmm. To me, that's always been a bizarre notion because um, 
why doesn't the law just say you can only be married to one person at a time? If that's what the law is, then they just don't recognize a second marriage. It's like the law actually recognizes the second marriage and then punishes you for having the legal status that the state confers upon you. It makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> right. I, it, it's almost like a, a, it's a bad, bad analogy, but it's something it's the way my mind works. Um, you know, in the old days when you would um, have a tape player in your car, right? You put a cassette in there, you playing. And if you push the fast forward and the, and, the, and the play button at the same time, you might jam it, right? It's possible to jam it, to make a mistake, to push two buttons at the same time because it's mechanical. But with modern, modern um, um, radios, all the buttons are electronic. So the programmer should simply just not allow a conflict to occur. Like if you push two buttons at the same time, you should just choose one of them or choose neither. But it doesn't make any sense to program a jamming function in there, which is what you're doing when you make bigamy um, – Bigamy a crime. So likewise, the reason I'm mentioning this is if 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 um, if I quote sell something to you when I'm drunk, and I I get your money in exchange for it. So I guess the, a better example would be um, I I sell something to a drunk person. Okay, so I say here buy this teddy bear, and I know the guy's wasted, and I take his dollar in exchange for it. Okay, so if we're going to say that the the guy is too drunk to consent to the exchange. Then it simply means that the exchange didn't happen. In other words, there was no title transfer. Now there was a transfer of possession, so we have to regard the dollar being handed to me as a loan, and I should know that. I should know that the guy's giving me possession of his dollar, but he doesn't have the capacity to transfer title to me. So really, I'm holding on to his dollar right now, and I don't have the ability to go to go spend that dollar because then I'd be spending someone else's money. If I do that, then I'm committing a type of trespass, right? Or conversion, it's called, right? So basically I need to return the dollar when the guy asked me for it, which is similar to what would happen in the sale case or in the loan case or in the bet case. If we make a bet and tomorrow um, the condition that we bet upon, you win the bet, then I'm $100 in my wallet now becomes yours. So I shouldn't go spend it because I should know that it's not my money anymore. Now I'm not committing trespass by holding on to it because you consented to that in effect by coming up with this bet. You knew that… Tomorrow, when the bet was won by you, I would be in possession of your hundred dollars. That means you need to ask me for it. You need to say, "Listen, I need you to return my one, give me my one hundred dollars." And if I refuse to hand it over, at that point, I'm committing a type of theft mm -hmm. by refusing to, to liberate or to return your money to you. But now, let's say that I'm penniless, like somehow I got robbed overnight before the bet was finished, and I am just totally without assets. Now, at the moment the bet is won by you. I don't have $100 to transfer to you, so I'm simply not in possession of your money, which is why I think uh, it's er erroneous to say that uh, like Walter Block does that at that moment in time, if I don't repay the debt, I'm committing what he calls implicit theft. Now, I've been a libertarian for a long time, and I still have yet to understand what implicit theft is. I know what theft is, but I don't know what implicit theft is. I think it's impossible to steal something that doesn't exist, and we have to recognize that most contracts that are not simple contemporaneous exchanges like a dollar for a candy bar, and it's done, done, said and done with, and there's really no terms other than these two simple exchanges. Most contracts have at least one future element, but we have to recognize that the future is uncertain, which means that whatever is to be transferred in the future is necessarily an uncertain thing that may or may not exist at the time of transfer. And the, the recipient of this thing is taking that risk. He's inherently taking that risk. It's impossible for anyone to guarantee 
that the world will exist even at the time the contract is to be fulfilled or that they'll be alive, right? Right. So it's impossible to guarantee that a future thing will, will exist. All you can do is say that if that thing exists and if I own it, then the ownership of it will transfer according to these preset conditions. That's interesting. So I'm, I'm taking a, a law and economics class now, and um, the teacher said something, and I, I sort of disagreed with it, and everyone sort of harped on me and said I was crazy, but I guess I want your thoughts, and that is, you know, um, a person finds an item that belongs to someone else. Okay. Um, if a guy goes to you and says, uh, hey, I'm missing something, do you know where it is? You can't lie and, and not... And, and say to him, no one will take it, but should you be required, let's say he doesn't know, to go to him and give him the item? Because you didn't steal it, so you didn't take away his property, um, and, okay. and not committing fraud should, should – I guess I'm asking – from a legal standpoint, if you find the property of someone else, should you be required to – well, you say you say they, they think you're crazy and you're asking me my opinion. This may be like the blind leading the blind. So uh, <laughs> some people think I'm a little crazy too, and so are my ideas. But um, I think first let's 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 step back and have a little note of caution. There are limits to what I call armchair reasoning. Okay, I think we have to be really careful about just making up rules for these hypothetical situations. And the reason is not because we're afraid to apply our principles. The reason is because in the real world, context always matters, and it's very, very difficult in these hypotheticals to specify enough context to make sure we're answering it the right way. Or our answer is so general that we would still have to apply it later. We'd have to kind of come up with new rules. Um, this is why the, a, a decentralized system like the common law makes so much sense is because the only time you have a rule that's fashioned is by a judge or some, you know, some jury or judge or arbitrator… Who's hearing an actual real dispute between people about a real conflict, and he fashions a rule in the search for justice to try to find the right result, but he can always ask questions and, and get more evidence to flesh out the relevant details. So in the case you gave, it's incredibly – and I know in, in, your, in your classroom maybe it was, had more details, but I would say it depends on the context, and for example, it could be that… You and the other guy are both members of the same – let's imagine an anarchic society, a private society, a private law society as Hoppe calls it. It could be that we all are members of uh, the same defense agency, justice agency, or, or similar ones that have agreements with each other. We all, we all agree that if you find property that's lost, you have an obligation to make a reasonable, reasonable effort to try to return it to the owner. Now, I wouldn't say that's a natural… Uh, law type obligation, but it could be something that people contractually right. agreed to, or right. it could be customary. Well, the yeah. example. Sorry, you go ahead. Go ahead. What's well, the I was just going to say the example in classes. You know, someone has a, posted a sign missing cat, and I said basically, if someone finds your cat, I think it's the right thing to do is to return it to its rightful owner. But I don't think, from a legal standpoint, you should be forced to. Uh, well, return that cat to its right. I, I, I mean, I wouldn't even agree with. I wouldn't even agree with that as, as an absolute statement. I mean, in most cases, you're imagining. I, I agree, it would be the moral thing to do, but not necessarily. I mean, what if you know the guy that that lost the cat was negligent and he's been warned twenty times to quit leaving the door open, and he's had five cats get run over by trucks because he, he's he's irresponsible, or he's not feeding them right, or he's abusing the cats, or whatever. 
hey, maybe you want to liberate the cat. I don't know. So I can imagine cases where – and this is why you have to have a real case to, to really flesh these things out. But I would say in here, here – but to, to quit avoiding – evading the question, I would say if you find – now remember, in a, in a free society, there's, there's really no such thing as public property. There's going to be – you're going to find this object somewhere. You're going to find it on a privately owned street or in a privately owned building or in a mall. And there might be rules set by the owner about these kinds of situations, but let's abstract away from that. Um, I think the general rule is if you come across an object, a resource that is an ownable type of resource, then the question is, is it unowned or is it owned? Okay, And you have to sometimes infer this by circumstances. So if you see a, a, an empty paper cup with Starbucks – stains in the trash can, you can make a reasonable assumption that the previous owner of that cup abandoned it okay, by putting it in the receptacle. You could also say the owner of the receptacle now owns the cup, but let's forget about that too. Let's just say he dropped it on the ground in a forest that's unowned. We can assume that this cup was owned, but now it's abandoned. If it's an abandoned piece of property or resource, then anyone who picks it up is now the new owner because they've rehomesteaded it. And it might be useful. You know, the cup may be useful to someone who finds it. So context matters. If you see uh, a $1,000 you know, uh, Rolex watch on the sidewalk in, in a busy street, you're, uh, the assumption is that it fell off some lady's hand, and she didn't want to give up ownership of it, but she accidentally lost it. So if you see this, this Rolex, you – have a very little basis for assuming that she intentionally abandoned it. What you have to assume is that she still owns it, but she's lost possession of it. So then the question is, well, what can you do with it? Well, she's the owner, so you can only do things that she permits you to do, but she's missing, so we have to make assumptions. And if you have to make an assumption, and it's a reasonable assumption, but it's the wrong assumption, that's her fault, not yours, because you didn't lose it. So you could assume that if there's a lost Rolex that the owner – would not mind if some helpful stranger picked it up and, and kept it safe for a while to see if she might want to reclaim it. Because if I lost a Rolex, I would be happy if someone – or a cat, for example. I'd be happy if someone rescued the cat for me. So you can presume consent of the owner. But the consent of the owner is not that you can go sell the Rolex like the very next day and get money for it. They wouldn't consent to that. Um, but after a certain amount so, – so I think you could pick – if your intent is to take the Rolex and to hold it in case you find the owner and to return it upon their request, then it's hard to argue that you're committing trespass. You're doing something that you presume the owner would consent you doing with, with the watch. right? But if – and maybe, maybe they wouldn't mind if you wear it a couple of times. I don't know. It gets into the nitty-gritty, but I think that you have to assume that at a certain point in time… Uh, either because of accident or negligence or just the imperfection of information, we're going to have to presume the watch is abandoned because it's impossible to find the owner. Sort of like money. I mean, money's fungible. If there's a gold coin at a certain point in time, you could never find the original owner. So at that point in time, it's as good as lost or it's as good as abandoned. And at that point in time, the guy that found it, I think, has a legitimate claim to it. But I think they would have to wait a while. Um, so I think those kinds of rules would develop gradually and have developed gradually uh, in a legal system um, over time.
that makes sense to you? Yeah. Very good. Um, I guess my next question uh, is one of my favorite topics, um, and that is uh, children's rights, um, which I very controversial <laughs> among a lot of people, certainly libertarians. Uh, I myself would say that circumcision is a violation of the uh, non-aggression principle. Um, abortion, I sort of agree with Walter Block on the evictionism theory, uh, when it comes to abortion, um, although I would pr I would say I'm I'm certainly um, pro-life uh, at heart, although I think a, a free market uh, for babies would la largely solve these issues. But I, I guess uh, you know my question is, um, children. Don't, don't you th don't you think what you just said is sort of the opposite? I mean, so you you, you think it's a aggression to circumcise a child, but not aggression to kill him. I mean. No, it is aggression to kill him. Well, but you said you agree with Walter's evictionism. Well, that that I mean, well, at least the way he explained it to me was removing it, removing it from the womb, but not you know killing it, not in the sense. No, no, right? no. He 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 said if you ha if removing it causes its death, then so be it. That's the price of having being evicted, basically. I think that they think that's his view. All right. Um, in other words, I, I, don't, I mean, and you, look, you, how can you remove a a three month old fetus in the womb without killing it? Now, I think he would say if you can remove it peacefully, like in the Victor Coleman book uh, Solomon's Knife, where there's this thing called transoption, where you can take the fetus out and put it in some some other woman's womb or an artificial womb or something, then you would have no excuse to kill it in that case, and I think Walter would agree with that. But if the only way to remove it would result in its death, then that's just an incidental byproduct, I guess collateral damage. Um, so that that would be – I don't know if you call it murder. That begs the question, but it is killing the right. the child to, to evict it. I mean you talk about children's rights. I mean I, I don't know when we say children have full rights. Um, my This is more of a… Common sense, customary, personal morals thing. My view is that it's hard to argue that a one-celled zygote that just was fertilized has rights, but it's also hard to argue that aborting a nine-month-old fetus is much different than infanticide, right? And it's also hard right. to argue that it, that it's not murder to kill a baby, although right. some cultures do that. Um, so my view is that basically as soon as you a, a woman finds out she's pregnant, I think it's basically immoral in most cases to commit abortion, even from the very beginning. Right. I would agree with that. It's, 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 just, it's just irresponsible, and I think it gets increasingly immoral as the baby gets more – the fetus gets more developed, and I think at a certain point we can say that it's close enough to a developed human that it's tantamount to murder. Now, I still don't think it should be prohibited by law for, for various reasons. It's too intrusive. It's it's just something I think I would say the jurisdiction over this is with the mother. Even if she makes the, quote, wrong choice, that, that's the price of real life. Um, um, so I would say that abortion is a rights violation at a certain point. It's immoral even before that. It's tacky in almost every case. Right. Uh, I think in an advanced society, there would be little need to anyway. I mean when sex wasn't… Um, uh, you know, uh, viewed as immoral and tacky and seedy. 
there'd be almost no stigma. I mean, if a woman gets pregnant accidentally, just if you don't want the baby, just give it up for adoption. Have the baby, give it up for adoption, and move on. I, I don't see the big deal. Um, right. Um, well, there's a big deal now because there's a big stigma sometimes because sex is seen as bad and women are called sluts and all this kind of stuff, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so you talk about children's rights. So I would say that. A baby has rights as soon as it's born for sure and ought to have legal rights, but they don't have the capacity to exercise those rights. So I think we have to view them as parts of the human moral community. They have full rights. They have complete full rights. They are full human beings, but we, we presume that the baby would grant agency power or guardianship powers to, to someone to, to care for the baby. And that would naturally be the parents unless the parents start abusing the baby or something like that or the child, right? in which case the child could be liberated or could run away, something like that. Now, But the other right I would talk about is the right of the child to support from the parents. Now, this is something most libertarians don't agree with, I think. Which is what? The idea that… The, that the child can run away? I would agree with that. No, no, no. The, the idea that the child has positive obligation, positive rights… Positive claims to support from the parents. Um, most libertarians shy away from that, like Walter does. Um, like he says, you don't have to feed your child, but you can't stop your child if he's starving on your property. But I think you do have an obligation to feed your child. After all, you brought into the world a helpless, a being that's dependent by nature, but that has rights because it's a human, and you're the you're the one who caused him to be in this situation. The analogy I use is. Um, imagine you're walking by a lake, and you see some stranger drowning. Now, you could jump in and try to save them, or you could keep walking. Now, the libertarian would say that there ought not be a legal obligation to rescue this stranger, and I agree with that in most cases. I think there's a moral obligation in some cases, but not a legal obligation. There shouldn't be a legal obligation, but that's the normal situation. What if you're the one who pushed the person into the lake? Right. What if you caused their… Position of peril, their position of danger. Then, in that case, you have performed an action. Okay, you have assumed an act. You have assumed an obligation to rescue the person who you put in danger. Sure. And I think when you have a child, it's a similar situation because you're not doing something wrong, but you are creating a being that has rights and that is in peril because of his dependent status. This is the human condition. Babies are not born like. Horses or tigers that can start, you know, su surviving right away. They, they're born dependent upon their their mothers and their families. Um, so in that case, I think that I think that you can make a good argument that by procreating, by having children, the mother and and the father too, I think, uh, assume an obligation to care for the child, a positive obligation. So the child does have positive rights to love, you know, sustenance, food, shelter. Care, education from the parents. So that's that's a ch children's right. I would agree with. Mm -hmm. No, I, I would agree with you. I think Rothbard is uh, wrong on this issue because I think he doesn't make the distinction between uh, positive obligations that uh, supposedly you have just for existing and as a result of your actions. If someone decides to buy a dog, uh, and you know. I mean, I don't believe animals have rights, so maybe this is a bad analogy. But um, if someone buys a dog and they are they obligated to, let's say, uh, feed the dog and you know clean up after it? Well, no. One, well, you could say yes, but that's only because they decided to put themselves in a situation where they became a dog owner. 
Right? If yeah, they didn't and, do that, and, and, if they didn't do that, they wouldn't have those obligations. Yeah, and who are they obligated to? Are they are they obligated to the, the dog or to society? I mean, not to society, and so they can only be obligated to the dog if the dog is a type of being that has rights. Right. 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 But right. we are but in the case of children, we don't I don't think most of us would deny that children have rights, so that 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 objection well, is not there in the case of children. Well, actually, in in Canada, I, I just saw I was just looking at this news today, where in Canada, actually, uh, if a mother uh, infanticide is is a significantly lesser punishment than murder. It's like a maximum sentence for two years, where it's considered you know it's not really murder, and I guess like a, a baby is a, a subspecies. It's I mean, that's that's a tough one because you could see arguments both. You could see an argument that killing your baby is one of the worst things you could ever do. I would agree with that one. Yeah, and it is in some ways, but you could also argue that it's it's of a it's a categorically different type than killing a more full formed child or 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 adult because uh, you're doing something different in the world. I mean, infanticide has been a practice in society. For some reason, and it's been tolerated for some reason. Um, it's it's a hard one. I mean, I, I my judgment, my, my my gut would be to go with you and to say that it's it's certainly not less bad <laughs> than regular right. murder. But the re there's a reason there's a concept for infanticide. It's it's considered to be different. Yeah, yeah. Well, may, I mean, may, maybe I'm also wrong in my abortion views because at least the way Walter Block uh, <coughs> described it, it, it didn't seem like killing, but um, Although you know, I mean, although he did say it, I sort of disagree with him on this. Is that you know, if it's unwanted, you can eject it from your property at any time. And you know, I I would say, well, if if you take someone on your airplane, you know, in the middle of the air, you can't say, okay, I want you off my property. Well, right? how about a, about a, or, or another example? If you invite a bunch of people to your house for a dinner party, and all of a sudden a typhoon hits or a big storm, and is raging outside, and it's going to last for another day. Can you just kick everyone out and subject them to possible peril? I mean, or do you kind of have an implicit contractual obligation or some other kind of obligation to let them stay longer than you originally would have wanted? I I would I wouldn't be unsympathetic to the latter argument, you know. You know? But 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 now this opens up a whole can of bees because I think if you say that that can say, well, then you can't ever fire someone because, you know, let's say it's in the middle of nowhere and he can't afford to move someone else and then he starves to death. Yeah, that's, mean, a little, that's a little bit different. Okay, so let me explain why. This goes back to the contract idea. People always call employment a contract, and it's, that, there's a big confusion there about that. Uh, in the case that I was giving, the contract is my, my permission as the owner of a home to allow people to stay inside the home and use it for a certain set of purposes, right? And whether I can insist that they leave even when they're leaving would be uh, a danger to them, right? So we could we could say that – so let, let's suppose I leased my house to you for a month, and I said, listen, I'm, I'm going to be out of town for a month. I'll lease my house to you for $1,000. I'll make some money, and you basically are the owner of this house for a month. I mean you can't burn it down, and you can't sell it. You can't repaint the walls, but basically you can use it as an owner would. Now – if I come home two weeks early, can I kick you out? I think there's a good argument that I can't because I'm actually not the owner of that property for those remaining two weeks. I've basically given up ownership temporarily of that property, at least for those purposes. 
In other words, there was a contract, but the contract amounts to a property, a temporary partial property property transfer. You follow me? Yeah. Now, that contract doesn't have to be explicit. It can be implicit. There's lots of – there's always going to be unwritten terms to contracts, and if you imagine I'm inviting some of my friends over for a dinner party. Now, I don't specify that it's a contract really and that how long they can stay. We all assume that you know they're going to leave at the end, and if someone gets drunk and starts acting like an idiot… I can kick them out, all that kind of stuff. But if one of them were to say, wait a second, before I come over, I read a report that there's a possible storm heading this way in the Gulf. I'm just curious. What are you going to do if at midnight when we're all supposed to leave, if there's a raging storm outside, you're going to let us stay longer, right? Now, what would the owner say in that case? Is he going to say, I'll make my mind up then, or no, I might kick you out anyway? Well, guess what? No one's going to show up to his party because they're going to think he's a jerk and not reasonable. And that thought experiment helps you decide what the default terms would have been if they would have addressed them. And the point is it's obvious that there's an implicit understanding of this invitation to come to the party that I'm not going to kick you out. It's just going to mean your death. <laughs> I mean, So it's like the lease example. In other words, it's, it is a contract, I would say, and that's why you can't kick them out. But I don't see an analogy to the employment thing because an employment contract is simply um, a transfer of money to someone triggered by their performing certain actions. That's it. It's a one-way title transfer. It's not really letting them – inviting them onto my property, anything like that. I'm simply saying if you perform certain actions, then I will transfer this money to you. And we were, we're going to repeat this every week until one of us decides we don't like the arrangement. That's it. So I don't see how you could extend that – the hurricane, tornado, typhoon analogy to an employment contract because it's – I'm not just giving them permission. I'm actually voluntarily giving them property that I own on a weekly basis for them performing something I want them to do. I mean I could make it a one-time thing if I was worried about it. I could say, listen, I'm going to – if you show up and perform the following tasks for one week, I'm going to pay you one week's salary. And then maybe next week we'll renegotiate. We'll do it again. Maybe we will. Maybe we won't. Okay. And then if the guy gets unemployed after, there's a big problem like you talk about. You know, I don't see how I I'm obligated to keep paying him for something that I didn't want him to do going forward. So I think that argument fails. All right. No, I don't believe in the argument either. I'm just I'm I was sort of you know I think people could mm -hmm. use that argument. Not that yeah. I not that no, I, I understand. No, I know. I just think it wouldn't work. I think it's not analogous. I think it's not um, one doesn't apply to the other. In my opinion. All right. Um, so, uh, okay, this this next one's interesting. Uh, conspiracy joint causation. Yeah, and let's be clear. We're not talking about conspiracy theories like 9/11 uh, trutherism and uh, lizard people or <laughs> whatever. Lizard people. <laughs> right, I just I just learned about this one. This guy Icky I C K E. Apparently, apparently, uh, there's a bunch of lizard people walking amongst us. Yeah, I think I may be one of them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's why that's why you're libertarian. Right. You're lizardarians. <laughs> um so conspiracy the, the the idea here is one that also confuses I think a lot of libertarians. Um Let's think about what society is. Society is uh human beings that live in cooperation with each other. Right? And they with some healthy modicum of respect for each other's rights, and therefore the division of labor results. We have social relations with each other. We cooperate. We trade. 
we have division and specialization of labor. Everyone, everyone benefits from this, um, right. pretty much. Now, in such a society, sometimes people cooperate with each other in a more formal way, which is called um, like a firm or a partnership or employment um, or a business. So they cooperate with each other to perform something. So if I hire someone to be an employee to help me in my business, we're cooperating with each other. And not only that, I'm using I'm using these other people as a means to my ends. And they're using me as a means to their ends, and that's fine. We're exploiting each other, but that's a good thing. Um, the point is cooperative action, joint cooperative action is possible. Two, three, four, more people can collectively come together to perform something that they couldn't do alone. That's the nature of society and the division of labor in a free market excuse me society. Mm -hmm. So we don't have a problem recognizing that in the recognizing that in the case of productive cooperative peaceful uh, activity that creates wealth and value. But it's also possible for crime and for for bad actions, right? So you can have a, a lone gunman but you could also have a group of people get together to collaborate to perform a nefarious crime, not only in the government and not only the Federal Reserve and not only the 9/11 uh, uh, bombing uh, type of conspiracies, but uh, you know a, a bank robbery or something like that or a heist. In those cases, what you have is you have multiple people working together to perform an act of aggression. Now. In those cases, in my view, and I've written an article on this with Patrick Tinsley on causation and responsibility in the uh, Quarterly Journal of Austrian Economics, the QJAE. In those cases, my view is that every one of the, the people that are co-conspirators – they're called conspirators because they conspire together. They, they act jointly together. I think they should all be independently, jointly, and severally liable for all the damages that they commit, even if each one of them didn't directly, personally commit one of the – one of the damages that was done. So, for example, let's suppose you have uh, two guys rob a bank, okay? And let's say one of them has a gun and the other one doesn't have a gun, but they rob the bank together. And then the guy with the gun ends up shooting a guard or a teller. Well, under the law as it is now, the other guy can be charged with first-degree murder even though he didn't pull the trigger, and I think he should be, right? It's, that's various doctrines justify that felony murder rule and um, other right. rules. Um, in fact, there's a bizarre application of the law. If the bank robber one is trying to shoot the guard but misses and, sh and kills his partner, he kills his partner. He can be charged with murder of his partner. Or if the guard shoots his partner, then the other guy can be charged with murder of his own partner. Right. Uh, well, yeah, obvi right. Obviously, yeah. if 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 I'm trying to rob, let's say, a convenience store, and the guy behind the cash register tries to defend himself. And I move out of the way, and he ends up shooting a customer. He's not charged with murder. I should be. Yeah, but even but but it, but let's say there's a bunch of bank robbers, and one of the bank robbers gets killed. Even that bank robber's death is called a murder that the other bank robbers are responsible for. So, I don't shed tears for the dead bank robber, and I don't mind that the other guys are getting charged with murder for that. But it's kind of a bizarre application. Right. Um, in any case. Um, uh, I mean, maybe that should actually mitigate their their sentence because <laughs> if they're if they're the ones responsible for killing one of their fellow bad guys, they should you know get some years knocked off their sentence for that instead of being charged with murder for it. Um, but anyway, so um, the the theory 
the law and libertarians have dealt with this in sort of a, a, a disjointed and ad hoc way um, because they have trouble explaining why the co-conspirator should be liable for the actions of others if the co-conspirator didn't directly perform the action. So they come up with different theories for this. Um, one of them is they call it a conspiracy. Well, that's sort of a question bag. Um, this is another thing uh, my buddy Walter Block and I disagree on. Walter adopts a sort of strict Rothbardian line on what's called incitement where he says, look… And you know the typical example of you have uh, some kind of quasi-primitive society like in the 1950s or the 1820s, and you know you have uh, you have some um, some uh, white woman is raped, uh, right? And uh, some black guy runs by, and uh, you got a bunch of angry white guys looking for a guy who did it, and they surely don't want it to have been a black guy. And uh, and then you see this black guy, and you know he's innocent, but he's an enemy of yours, and you. Or you hate blacks or whatever, and you go, there he is. There's a guy. Go get him. String him up. And you whip the crowd up into a frenzy, and the crowd goes after him and lynches this guy. Now, clearly, an act of murder has been committed. The question is who committed the act of murder. At least the guys that strung him up and hung him are guilty of murder, and I would say arguably most of the crowd that was participating. But what about the guy that incited them? Like he just stood on the sidelines and whipped them up into a frenzy. Is he guilty or not? Sure. Now, and Rothbard says no because that's just free speech, and he didn't perform any action, right? Well, so, actually, actually, I don't know Rothbard, but I've heard Walter Block on this very clear, clearly. And Walter Block said, if you say to someone, "Go rape, kill," yeah, then you're then you're innocent. But if you say over there by the bushes, that's just doing more than excitement, and you're yeah, but, and but, you're but, guilty. Yeah, but I don't know what. What is he doing that's more? I don't really know. What because the because he's pointing out a certain person. If yeah, I say to theory? you, if I say to you, kill, I want you to kill someone. I think Walter Block would say you're you're innocent. But if I say kill Tom or kill uh, that person, then I'm pointing out a specific person. No, I don't think and so. Now I, it's so, more than just. I don't, I don't think general. that's his. That's not exactly his view. I don't think. I think what he would say is. And this is what I've gotten from him. We've talked about this. His view is that there are two cases where you are responsible for what someone else does. Number one, if you coerce them. So let's say I let's say I uh, I'm a mob boss and I tell my underling, I want you to go go kill that guy. And if you don't, I'm gonna shoot you. Well then you're guilty because you coerced them. Okay, fine. I don't really I'm still not sure what the general theory is here, but okay, fine. And the other is if you have a contract, okay? Like if a woman wants her husband out of the way and she hires a hitman to kill her husband to get the insurance money, then she's guilty. But I don't really understand why these two ad hoc exceptions, especially given the Austrian view, the Rothbardian view of contract, which is just a transfer of title to property, and the Austrian view of subjective value, which is that you know it's not just the obtaining of ownership of physical material goods that motivates people it's lots of other things right value subjective so for example i would say that if a woman seduces her boyfriend or promises just even if she just persuades her boyfriend her lover to kill her husband i still think she's a murderer the right. problem is that a lot of libertarians have this fixed libertarians criticize um liberals for having the fixed pie view of wealth, the idea that if someone gets rich, it has to be at the expense of someone else, and we criticize that because we know it's a, a fallacious idea. It's actually completely untrue, Right. partly because contractual exchange is not 
an exchange of equals to equals, it's everyone is better off after the exchange. But in any case, but libertarians sometimes have a fixed pie view of liability, and they're afraid to blame the wife in the case I gave because they think that it gets the 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 lover shooter off the hook because they imagine there's a hundred percent bucket of responsibility, and we have to put it on the lover because he actually shot been, the husband. But if we give the wife responsibility, there's none left for the husband. I mean, for I mean, the lover. And I'm thinking, like, well, how about we give a hundred percent to each one? They're I mean, both one hundred percent liable. Look, I'm I'm pretty libertarian, but I I think that's sort of crazy. I mean, look, I mean, um, Charles Manson is in jail for murder, and he should be, but he didn't kill anyone. Well, and he didn't, hey, and he, neither, and he, neither, neither did Hitler, as far as I know. Right, Hitler right, never killed anyone. Right. So, but what I would say is, look, Charles Manson is in jail for murder, and he should be in jail for murder. Yes. Now he didn't, he didn't pay anyone to kill anyone, and he didn't threaten anyone if he didn't kill anyone. Well, all whether he, he, whether he should be in jail was, is a different question. All. If I exit, well, however you want to punish him, execution, what? whatever, right. whatever. He should be punished. Okay. He should, he should be regarded as a murderer. Let's put it that right. way. Right. What the what the treatment is is a different issue, but yeah, right. I agree with you. Right, but he didn't he didn't threaten to beat anyone up if they didn't kill him, and he didn't. All he did was, well, some people say that he gave him drugs like LSD, but so what? Right, that's but, legal. But, right, it should be but, legal. Right, but certainly he he told him to do it, and and he and to me that's murder. Look, if you tell your son uh, beat the crap out of some girl in school, I'm sorry, you're guilty. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's a, that's a fuzzier example because there's the issue of your authority over the child and all that. But in a way, it's a good example. Um, so I think what's missing here is a general theory of responsibility, which is what Pat Tinsley and I tried to work out. What we said was we said, look, let's step back and, and let, let's use Mises' idea of praxeology, the structure of human action, and let's think what is it that should – what is it that humans do, and what is it that we do when we cooperate with each other? And what does it imply for responsibility? And so in a nutshell, um, what human action is is it is the employment it's the it's the decision, right? It's a choice and the decision to pursue a given end, the end result you want to achieve, by employing some means in the world that will help you achieve it. Now the means are usually what we call scarce means or natural or scarce resources, you know, like a gun. Right or a bomb or my fist, something that causally causes the end that I want to come about. But as Mises shows in the field of cooperation, we can use other people as means. So, for example, if I want to, you know, kill someone, I could run across, you know, run run down to their home and put a bomb on their front door and run away, ring the doorbell and run away. Right when they open the door. Well, I guess they killed themselves. They opened the door, you know, according to certain people, right? But no, so I could commit the action that killed them, or I could hire a guy from FedEx. I could say, look, I've got a delivery I need you to pick up, and I give him a box, a cardboard box. The FedEx guy doesn't know what's in it. He just delivers it, and then it blows up and kills the guy. Well, is the FedEx driver a murderer? No. I don't think so. Maybe he's negligent, but that's the most you could say. I'm the murderer. But there I has to be criminal intent. That, there's no criminal intent in, yeah. that, in that case. Well, and, th and that goes back to the, the Misesian structure. Of so a given action is an intentional employment of means to achieve a given end. So in my view, the general thing is this. Why are we responsible for aggression? Because we committed the act of aggression. What does that mean? It means we employed some means that actually achieved the interference with the borders of someone else's property. 
Now, there's lots of ways to do that. You can do it with your bare hands, but you could also do it in other ways. You could you could hire other people to do it. You could persuade other people to do it. You could coerce other people into doing it. But as a general matter, you don't have to have a contract with them for it to be to fall into this structure. You don't have to coerce them. I mean, President Truman, when he ordered the bombs dropped over in Nagasaki and Hiroshima, I don't think you could say he physically was coercing anyone. He didn't. He, I don't think he had any guns. He didn't coerce his chief of staffs, his generals, all the way down the chain. I mean, there was a pilot that delivered the bomb. I guess you could say he had to follow orders, or he might go to jail. But what if? What if? What if it was optional? What if? You don't think that you'd have a thousand servicemen lining up to be the ones that could deliver the bomb? You don't have to threaten people to do that. Say, hey, we got a bomb that's going to kill 100,000 Japs. Who wants to be the guy that's going to fly it over there and drop it? You're going to have a 1,000 hands raised. They're not coerced. Right. And what if you said, we're not paying you a cent to do it? It's totally a voluntary mission, so there's no contract and there's no coercion. Now, is the only guy that's liable the guy that flew the plane and they dropped the bomb? It's ridiculous. Right. I mean Hitler is a mass murderer even though he didn't pull a trigger. You know, Truman is a mass murderer even though he didn't drop the bomb. He caused right. it to happen. So the question is causality, causation. Sure. And I think you can cause things to happen by using other people as your means, even if you don't coerce them. And even if you don't pay them money, you can pay them in other ways. Sure. Yeah. I'm I I'm I'm I would agree with you. I would I would even agree that uh not only the police and the um and the uh, and the judge should be guilty uh, if if it's an act of aggression, but the court should be as well. If if a court uh, uh, convicts a person uh, into jail for victimless crimes, the court yeah. should be guilty of aggression as well. The jury should be yeah. guilty of aggression I, as well. I've known libertarians who say only the guards is only the guards who are guilty because they're the ones keeping you in jail. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Yeah. The judge, the uh, the um, um, the whole apparatus, and yeah, I agree. With the jury too. In fact, the jury is one of the most important. The jury's the main one. The jury, in a way, is the most to blame because these people have complete carte blanche because we have double jeopardy in this country, right? And we basically have jury nullification, even though they're too stupid to know it, right? <laughs> but basically, if you're a juror, you have no excuse for voting to convict someone of a victimless crime. Because there's no punishment to you if you vote to acquit them. right? You have the right to acquit them if you want to. You don't really have to give a reason. So there is no excuse whatsoever for a juror to go along with this. Um, so in a way, I hold jurors to be in a way the most responsible of all, more responsible than voters, more responsible even than legislators because the legislators, whoever gets elected, is going they're going to do what they were elected to do. The, the kind of person that gets to become a legislator is the kind of person that's going to vote for the kind of laws that that they're elected to to do. But there's just no excuse for a, for a juror to uh, vote to convict an innocent person, in yeah. my opinion. Yeah, you know, I would agree with you. I've had I've had some libertarians who who disagree with me and on you know my view that the jury should be guilty as well. But um, no, I I would I would. Uh, I would agree. Well, that. that's that's why I mean I mean look, you can refuse, you can you can tell the truth. Now it's unfortunate, but I've talked about this recently on Facebook and stuff. What happens is the government knows about these troublemakers, right? Now people like us, 
And so they asked during what's called voir dire when you interview the juror, the prospective jury. Why what? I think if you if you get called up for jury duty and the judge says, "Can you be impartial?" To me, it's like a a, a Nazi guard saying, "Are you hiding a Jewish family?" You don't oh, no, I don't know. think I don't think it's immoral to lie. I think I think it's not immoral to lie at all. I don't know if it's prudent in every case to lie. I don't know if you have an obligation to lie. Um, I think I think you have a moral obligation to lie. Sure. I don't know. No, it depends. Do you not have a moral obligation to lie if a, if a rapist knocks on your door and says, "Where is your wife and daughter?" If, well, if the Nazi if the Nazi guard says, "Are you hiding a Jewish family?" You have an obligation to lie. It, it, I don't know if it's so clear because if if you um if you are questioned, they don't just ask these general questions. They're they're pretty specific. They say uh, this defendant is facing 15 years to life for smuggling this brick of cocaine. Um, if the state proves that they did the following X, could you vote guilty um, knowing that they would go to jail for at least 15 years? They ask you these things, and they ask that because they know there are jury nullifiers out there. Now, I think it's perfectly moral to lie, but yeah. if you lie, there's a reasonable fear in some jurisdictions that you're committing an act of perjury, which is a crime. So you're basically jeopardizing your own safety and that of your family. Well, actually… So they did say they did say the word could. I could say he's guilty. They're, I they're, could. They're, they're, they they but. well okay. I, I agree with you, it's, but look, <laughs> it depends on who you are too. If you're just a, an average Joe who's, but but if let's say you're someone who's published <laughs> several articles that are online saying that I would never vote to convict anyone of this, and, and you've admitted your position in public, you know there's a reasonable fear that you could be in trouble if they suspect that you have committed. Um, or like in my case, I'm a lawyer, so they could take my they could take my uh, uh, my law license away, take my livelihood away. So the the, the point is, they can impose uh, actual penalties on you. What I'm saying is, once you're in the jury, if they let you in the jury, if you vote to acquit, there's nothing they can do to you because you have the right to vote as your conscience says. But in the voir dire. You answer under – I believe this is correct. I could be wrong. I think you answer under penalty of perjury. So I'm just saying at that point in time, you're judging between your own life and the life of some stranger. So I, I don't know if there's a clear-cut answer in every case. Right. Highly contextual, I think. I guess so. But I, th I think it would be hard that – you know, to because you don't have to say why, so I think that would be very hard to uh, make you guilty anyway. But I think, um, I think that's probably correct. I think you're probably right. So I, I admire libertarians who have this strategy. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I want to do whatever yeah. I can to go on a jury duty. I they they won't accept me. In my well, that's the thing. They 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 they're not stupid. They have ways of kicking us off, you know. And pretty soon they're going to start searching our Facebook pages and all that. Anyway, that's going to be part of yeah. our dear. Yeah, that's why I agree with Lysander Spooner. The jury should just be from a common pot. Yeah, at random. yeah I, I think I think it should just be completely random and whoever it is, it is. And no I, questioning uh, beforehand. Uh, I agree. I am totally against the entire uh, voir dire process. I could see kicking out someone who has an obvious close connection to the case with a bias, but other than that, I think whoever you pick is on the jury. Yeah. Well, you could well, – no, I don't think even – even a person who's biased, I don't think – because someone could be biased the opposite way. So it's sort of – you know, it can even out, right? It could. It could. Um 
It could. Yeah, no, I, I if, if you force me to choose, I would say just pick pick Well, I, I feel the same way about legislators, you know, just pick people at random from the phone book. You know? <laughs> <laughs> You'd get the same result. I, I I think it'd be better. No, I think it'd be much better actually. It couldn't be worse. Yeah. It couldn't be worse. Yeah, I don't. It doesn't make a difference who who becomes. No, because because the way it works now, there's a filtering process, and the worst rise to the top. But if you make it random, right. then at least you might have. It's almost like Hoppe talks about monarchies. Like in democracy, there's almost no chance you're gonna have a decent government because the process filters out good people and selects for people that want power and have short-sighted interests because they're only in power for a certain time. But if you have a monarch, let's say you have a monarchy. Not that we're in favor of that, but if you had a monarchy. Every now and then you might actually get a good king. I mean, you just by luck of the draw. You may, maybe every yeah. every tenth of the time you have actually a good king, and you can go to the king. And you can say, "Listen, you realize this is the law in this province, and it's really right. unjust." And he might say, "Yeah, I agree with you." Yeah. Well, the, I, think be, I, th you know, I think I think the worst thing about majority rules uh, is then the let, like if a king is corrupt, all you have to do is assassinate the king, and it's very easy. Right. But if the majority yeah. is corrupt, you're totally screwed. Well, it's not just the majority. I mean, you have this, the administrative, the modern bureaucratic administrative state is, is an entity, an organization that exists independently of the temporary administrators of it, like Obama and these other guys. You know, if you were to somehow uh, get rid of a given politician, it wouldn't change a thing. Right. I mean, Hello? State. Yeah, sorry, okay. what? Let's just say you have a governor of a random state, and he's some socialist. Let's say he dies of a heart attack. Well, his lieutenant governor is going to step into his chair, and what's, what's the difference? You know, they're, None of these guys are really different. Right. So you can't – What I'm, I'm agreeing with you that you can't decapitate the state in its current form, but you could decapitate a monarchy. Right. Yeah, and the threat the threat of that keeps this, these guys operating with a certain like he knows if he starts you know roughly feathers too much, someone's going to come true. after him. That's true. Plus, in a, in a monarchy, there's no delusion that the people are in charge. They know that this guy's in charge, so they're yeah. they're 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 less inclined to obey his orders. I agree. Yeah, this is the problem of democracy: is it deludes us into thinking we we are the state. Well, it doesn't delude us, but it it deludes you know stupid people, yeah. Because because we don't vote. We're not. <laughs> yeah, right. Some of us don't anyway. Yeah, it's 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 a waste of time. Yeah. Anyway, uh, there's a whole uh, other list of topics I wanted to do, but um, to be continued. There's uh. It's great having you. We can do a part two sometime. Sure. Why don't we do that. Part two. We're gonna, we're gonna, sure. Yeah, we're wrap we, it up we've now? been going like an hour and uh, fifteen minutes already. So yeah. Okay. That's yeah. true. Uh, well, we covered a lot in a short time, so uh, I appreciate you. Good questions, man. And uh, so, law are you school. in law school now? Is no. that what you're saying? Oh, law and economics. I'm studying. Ec I want to be an economist, were... but not a lawyer. Okay. Okay. Not a lawyer. Okay. Good. Good. <laughs> Just too many of us. Too many of us out yeah, there. Yeah, that's true. Too many. I enjoyed it. Well, keep up the good work. Yeah, I'd be happy to do part two sometime. All right, man. Great having you on again. Thanks. Take care. Bye.